Hey, everybody. Adam Jackson back here for another episode of our weekly podcast. Uh, quick introduction. I'm a uh, serial entrepreneur, started four venture-backed companies, investor in hundreds of companies and projects, co-founded a crypto hedge fund called Cambrian, and co-founder of talent network called Brain Trust. And I'm also an LP in a lot of fun. So I wear a lot of hats, have a lot of interesting conversations during the week, and try to put them down into this podcast to help anyone who's working in tech or investing or a founder uh try to try to learn from uh all the mud i step in every week anyway this episode this week uh it's been really fun i've been down in beverly hills for the medici conference uh so i'll share a bunch of cool stories and insights from that talk about where crypto and ai are in the hype cycle because now we have to talk about both these things at the same time apparently and then i'll cover a couple questions we've gotten uh, over the last couple of weeks from uh, folks who listen to the show. So first of all, um, oh, also please like and subscribe, rate and review, only if it's positive. Uh, it really helps uh, helps the algorithms that determine what all of us see, helps this show get out to to other founders and investors like you. Anyway, so uh, Medici Conference, it's uh, down here in Beverly Hills. I think this was the fifth fifth one. Um, it's run by this guy named Adam Winnick, who's just an just an awesome person, really well connected, smart investor. I think he has a fund of his own. Um, brings together. It's only about a hundred folks every year, and they and they churn out a lot. They kind of you know, it's invite only, and they try to bring new people in. And um, this is my third year, maybe my last year. I don't know. I may not may not be invited back after this year because he, he does churn folks out. But um, uh, the first year I went, I got to speak uh, about Cambrian when we were launching that fund and. And then last year, um, got to talk about brain trust uh, up on the main stage. So really, really awesome format. Incredibly high quality folks. Um, you know, a couple couple takeaways themes from this year. Um, fundraising was a big topic, and and there there's uh, only a there's like you know a handful of builders, a handful of investors, and then you know lots of kind of LPs like institutional money, family offices, that kind of thing, and um, everything's off the record and. You know, really just high quality conversations, but fun. You know, I had several several uh, VC friends of mine talk about just how difficult this fundraising environment is for crypt, specifically for crypto. Saying like, man, like a year ago, we were making arguments for what type of infrastructure, what type of applications should be built, and like now we're we're sometimes making arguments about like why the space should exist, right? And that was that was troubling to hear because there's just so much cool stuff being built here. But um, anyway, and then of course. Regulation always the hot topic these days. Um, there was like literally everyone was talking about how everyone's going to Singapore. There was a, a few folks from Singapore uh, at this conference, and and then big investors like Tomasek, uh, who are based in Singapore. Um, but everyone's talking about like these big crypto events and investor events and Token twenty forty seven and. All these things happening around the Formula One race in September. I mean, I was invited to you know, half a dozen things happening in September, which I'm really excited to be going to. I've never been to Singapore, um, but the fervor around, you know, there's so much capital formation there. They're regulatory, very, very friendly to crypto. There, it's it's a safe place. You know, it's a good society, right? It's a modern place. Um, it's not authoritarian. And um, anyway, it, it felt like. You know, when I moved to San Francisco, you know, in, in like, you know, the early mid 2000s, you know, all the all the excitement about that, it felt exactly the same. It was deja vu. Anyway, um, 
Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, was there. Um, really, really, I'm I've always been such a huge fan of Brian's. He's like, you know, what we talked about this week was, you know, the, all the things they're doing to, you know, keep crypto onshore in the U.S. And, um, you know, they he mentioned I hadn't heard of this. There's this project he started called Crypto Four Thirty Five, which that's not the domain, but just Google it. Um, it's basically a form. You type in your name and your email and your zip code, and it's it's building a coalition. The goal, he said, was to build a coalition of folks in every single congressional district that can, you know, represent the voter block, right? That like there are a lot more people who care about crypto than the government might might think right now. And so this is very much a grassroots effort. I thought it was really cool. The interesting quote he had was, um, he said, there's more people using crypto than carrying union cards right now, yet our representation is, you know, many, many orders of magnitude smaller than union representation. So that was an interesting statistic. Um, you know, and he's kind of this unwitting, like it, he doesn't really want to be the face of this thing. You know, he's, a, I've always loved, you know, he's a product and an engineer at heart. Um, you know, he built the first version of Coinbase. You know, he led that effort, you know, as a developer. Uh, and now he's the CEO of his public company and he's, you know, having to, you know, represent the whole industry. So he's doing a great job. It was, it was really fun to see him. Um, another person I thought uh, what I, I was just so impressed by, and, you know, I don't, I don't follow politics that closely. Like, I'll show up in D.C. if it's helpful. Um, you know, I did last year with, with Senators Lummis and Gillibrand. Um, but this uh, uh, representative Patrick McHenry uh, took the stage. He was the final kind of speaker yesterday. And um, he's chair of the House Financial Services Committee, which oversees the SEC. And, um, you know, I don't, you may not know, Gensler, he called Gensler to testify um, at the House last week. And um, it was a very uncomfortable video. Um, anyway, so, you know, some some kind of par paraphrasing quotes here that I, I thought were really compelling by McHenry. He said, you know, Gensler is willfully acting to make consumers and retail investors less safe. His incompetence should have gotten him fired in any other job. Um, he's, and I'm just, I, I'm not, I don't deal with, um, you know, elected officials very often and don't follow them on TV very much, but uh, this guy was so compelling. And, um, and then I, yeah, I looked him up on, on Wikipedia, you know, he's, um, he's only 47 years old, uh, like just lightning smart and, and just like an attack dog on, on SEC and the Gensler. And, um, he, you know, argues that it, it, like, we should have a common sense regulatory framework for this to, and to keep, to keep all of this onshore and not let Singapore get all of it. Right. And, um, so he's working on a bill that will, that we basically, you know, it's a stable coin bill. It'll um, have, you know, updated rules around how to evaluate tokens and whether they're securities or commodities or something else. Uh, and they're actually working on it and they're planning on sending it over to the Senate this fall, over to Lummis and Gillibrand. And they think they can get this thing passed as law. And they, he says there's bipartisan support. Um, anyway, like really inspiring guy. You should check him out. Um, he's from, I, then I was really curious. I'm like, where's this guy from? I'm like, I bet he's not from California. Correct. He's from North Carolina. And um, which is also, you know, another one of those kind of new, or it's always been kind of a biotech hub, but, you know, kind of a business friendly place. So anyway, really impressive with him, impressed by him. Um, now on to where we are in the crypto and AI hype cycle. We'll put this tweet up. This is a great tweet I saw this week um, by Mike Hudak. Uh, it, and it's basically like, you know, the curve of, you know, 
expectations and time, you can see it on the screen here. Anyway, so we like we're clearly at peak inflated peak of inflated expectations with AI and and trough of disillusionment with crypto, um, which I thought was pretty appropriate. But you know, sitting in the audience and then having all these great side conversations at Medici this week, it, it, it actually re-inspired me. I mean, I I got to see like fund managers I'm an LP in, like like Olaf Carlson Wee from Polychain did a whole presentation about how um, you know building crypto identity systems that are bot proof, right? Because with with Chat GPT, we're going to have this spam problem. I've talked about this on shows in the past and. Crypto has tons of ways that you can like eliminate the fake news problem, right? And he was talking about identity systems that can only that, that a bot can't get through, right? That only humans can get through, and um, it was really inspiring. I mean, there, there there are so many practical and useful applications, not just commercial applications, like societal applications for crypto that that folks like this are thinking about, and made me glad to still be in the space and be an investor in these funds. Um, I was talking with a reporter as well. Um, she's at a, a, a tier one pub and we catch up now and then. And she was just asking like, Hey, what are you seeing out there? Whatever. We're just kind of dishing for a bit. And, um, I was like, yeah, I mean, no one will write about crypto anymore unless, you know, it's somebody going to jail or whatever. And, um, like understandable. Um, but you know, there's still a lot of stuff going on. And, and she was saying, you know, we just love writing about AI cause it's good news. Right. And it, like back to that peak disillusionment. Um, but we were talking about fundraising and AI and, and I said, you know, and she asked me if I'm doing any deals and I'm, I'm looking, I'm seeing deals. Uh, I don't think I've done any yet. I, the valuations are out of control. I, I was just sent something that was a reverse Dutch auction for a series A, which is where like, it basically like they'll publish the deck and then email all, everyone who, who expresses interest and then ask them what valuation they would pay and how much they would invest, right? And then you just kind of triangulate and they all do it all by type form. <laughs> and then I got an email back saying like, our valuation will be, be somewhere between 200 million and a billion. And I think it was for a series A round um, for, I don't know, you know, I just, that is like, that feels like crypto 2020 to me. Um, anyway, so, um, but I was saying like, is it, isn't it odd that VCs are still chasing these deals when when most LPs know that like 80% of the enterprise value of of AI is going to accrue to the major players, Facebook, Meta, Google, Netflix, Apple, um, Spotify, even, you know, like th there's not like th th these are these large language models need the data that these companies have. And this is not it's not it's less a domain for startups. Of course, there'll be like 10 or whatever startups that do end up you know, doing something really compelling in AI, but it won't be hundreds, I don't think, right? And this is sort of common knowledge in the LP class, but yet the VCs are still bidding these deals up. Um, and then finally, my uh, my the funniest thing I saw related to AI this week was, here, if you want to show this tweet, Rowan Cheng, uh, IBM plans to replace 7,800 jobs with AI, which is like the biggest load of shit I think I've ever heard. Talk about a company that like, probably has 80% more payroll than it needs. And now it's going to not just lay off 7,800 people who they don't need, but replace them with AI, right? Like six months ago, this would have just been, hey, we hired too many people because we are a massive corporate waste machine. But now like we're going to kick you even harder and say we're replacing you with AI. 
Um, it's just such a load of just ingenuous bullshit from IBM. Anyway, uh, okay, on to QA, Q and A. Uh, I haven't done any of these Q and As in a while, so we had some questions pile up, uh, and so I'm just going to pick a few out that I thought were good. Um, so last week on the podcast, I talked about the professional managerial class, the PMC. That got a lot of responses, not all of them very friendly, which is good. Um, and uh, so here, let me let me roll through some of these. So so the first one, I'll start with the PMCs. Um, you know, a lot of people, so this one we got on LinkedIn, there, there's not a name on it, but um, a lot of people in business suggest you should operate with an abundance mindset, which I've I've said myself before, I have an abundance mindset, but you're essentially suggesting to operate from a place of scarcity. What informed that belief and what do you say to people who believe in abundance? This is a great point. So I said last week, you know, companies should have, there should be constraints on you to force you to be more efficient, right? So I like the 50 or 60 employee constraint, right? No matter how much money you have in the bank, like if you constrain it to a small team, it forces people to be more thoughtful about new hires, forces people to think about efficiency and automation before just throwing bodies at it. And this has been an endemic problem in tech for a long time, right? Tech is always just hire more people and load out the organization as we talk about all the time. And then these poor people get laid off when like the wind blows in the wrong direction, right? It's it's very unfair and and a waste of investor dollars. So um, so I have an abundance mindset about like the potential of a company or an idea or an industry, right? I think, you know, we live in a, I have a positive sum mindset. We live in a positive sum world, right? Like there's, the, you know, creating new companies and startups that, that is one of the best sources of wealth creation and, and abundance, right? So very abundant mindset, but I don't think you can have a record realize abundance without having constraints. And so that's, you know, that's a, the, the way I kind of discern between those things. Um, another one, how do you support employees if, with fewer managers if you're going to not have a PMC uh, software? You know, if, if something is not core to your business and can be outsourced or automated, that it should be, right? You should not be hiring people to do it. Um, here's another one, a fun one. I'm a people manager and I find your assertion that there is no place for people managers in a successful org really insulting. Perhaps you've never worked with a truly great people manager. Well, uh, first of all, I, I I don't think that there's no place for people managers. Um, there certainly has to be, right? Um, people, payroll and taxes and questions and like that stuff is important. Um, the people the people manager needs to be very growth oriented, though. They need to like look at everything through the lens of is. Like, are these people or is this department or is this KPI laddering toward our goal, whether that's revenue growth or user growth or whatever it is. Um, I mean, we have an excellent people person here who've had, our, was one of our first hires, uh, Ann Muscarella is our chief of staff, and she is just dogged about this, right? Like examines every single hire. Is this contributing to GSV growth? Is this, um, you know, can can this person, you know, do we, does this person need to be an internal employer, can we outsource this to some service? Um, so yeah, I definitely have nothing against people managers, but I just think if they're not growth oriented and if you have too many of them, it can, you know, it can be counterproductive. So yes, I have worked with a great people manager. Uh, another one from Dave Keller. I think this came in on LinkedIn. Uh, when is the wrong time to engage VCs? Never. It's always the right time to engage them. Uh, this, this reminded me of a story actually when, um, I was raising the series B, I think for Dr. On Demand. And we were down, I, I just hit every firm I could on Sand Hill. And it was, it was interesting. Like there were firms that were a perfect fit. This, this doesn't happen a lot, but like 
so some of them are just a pass, right? They, they don't like you or what you're doing and they're not going to do it, right? But expect that. But there were some like, hey, you know, this is a really good fit for us. I think it was Paul Allen's Vulcan, you know, um, Vulcan is the uh, family office of the, the late Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft. And um, Vulcan was just, I, they, I'm sure they're still around, right? They're just awesome people, like very, very, um, uh, like, cause driven like paul allen was was a huge philanthropist just a great great man and i think it was they were looking at this deal and the partner i was talking to was like man i, I really love this like it's kind of a no-brainer for us valuations right but like i'm about to go on paternity leave i just can't get it done i can't get it through our partnership or what you know it's like hey it was like just bad timing right if i would have hit him six months earlier six months later he, it probably would have been a great deal um and so you don't know what a vc's like schedule is or where what's going on in their lives or whatever and you know their their job is is 24 7 right they're always looking for deals and um and and most of them are, are really opportunistic and and sharp so it, there's never a bad time to engage them okay last one here early so this is from drew cousin i think on linkedin our early stages of marketplaces uh need to solve a chicken and egg problem how have you best seen that so yeah, obviously, like you know, you need when you're building a two-sided marketplace, you need supply and demand, and you need to build those fast enough at the same time to achieve liquidity and 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 break break the Earth's orbit, so to speak. Um, I I get this question a lot. Like, you know, I've started four venture back marketplaces now. Like, wh what makes you decide to start one or not to start one, and and how do you fit, solve the chicken and egg problem? I would say now after like having it done, done it just the absolute hardest possible way. So many times, um, you, like you, you need it, you need an unfair advantage on either supply or demand. Right. So when I started this little site called market square in 2004, I, I didn't know anything about anything, but I just went door to door at retail stores in this Marina in San Francisco and like signed up these retail stores and said, Hey, would you like to use the internet to get more customers? And they're like, what's the internet? <laughs> and, and so I loaded up, hundred retail stores and took pictures of their products and put them on a website and then did local SEO. And that was sort of my unfair advantage. I started with free inventory because they, they were like, yeah, you can do it. I'm not going to pay you, but you can do it. Right. Uh, and then I started dry foot traffic and then I was able to charge them. And, you know, so that's how I solved that chicken and egg with fast. And that's hard, right? You're starting from zero. When, when Dr. Phil approached me to start Dr. On Demand back in 2012, you know, he had this he's a big television celebrity, has a huge audience. He, you know, he approached me. I, I had just finished an earnout from my my second company that we sold to Advanced Auto Parts. And, and he said, look, I got this great idea. People need medical care and psychological care. Um, and not everybody can get to an office or a clinic or a therapist to, to do it. So why don't we do it over video? And this is before FaceTime, right? Like video chat was not, there was Skype, but that was it. There, was, it wasn't very common. And he said, look, we reach 30 million people a week. We can demo the app on the show. There's, you know, there's your demand, right? <laughs> like, so that was an unfair advantage. And we grew Dr. Underman very quickly, thanks to him and his shows and, and his son, Jay McGraw, and, and his show, The Doctor. So anyway, get an unfair advantage if you can. All right, folks, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. Have a good week.